Welcome to On DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. Thanks for joining us this week. And coming up later in the program, the military structures for its Guard and Reserve Forces haven't changed much since World War II. In the meantime, civilian work has changed a lot. We'll talk to the Rand Corporation about some new ideas to realign reserve commitments with the realities of the 21st century labor market. First, though, the Army's top leadership is expected to sign out a brand new data strategy any day now. It's an update to a document the Army first published three years ago, and the general principles are the same. It is heavy on the idea that data needs to be shareable across the Army enterprise. Lieutenant General Bruce Crawford, the Army's chief information officer, says what's new this time around is that the Army will enforce those data-sharing principles with new standards. And a forthcoming order from the Deputy Chief of Staff for Operations will tell Army components exactly how to do that. Crawford talked with me about the new data strategy in an interview on the sidelines of the Association of the U.S. Army's Conference on Cyber and IT Issues recently. That interview is coming up in just a few minutes, but to set the context for that conversation, we're first going to hear some of his comments from the podium at AUSA. There are some specific uh, first principles that are associated with the data strategy and implementing the data strategy. And you've heard a couple of them, but I'll tell you, when you see the Army's data strategy, you're going to see first principles uh, highlighted. And you might go blinding flash of the audience. I, I, I get it. Uh, a lot of people are talking about that. But what I'm telling you, we've taken the next step to actually assign standards to each one uh, of uh, those first principles. So there are standards that'll be associated with making our data visible. Just because I put out a memo that says make your data visible, or Steve Fogarty puts out an operations order that said data will be visible, uh, that's not gonna solve the problem. So in the data strategy, when you get a chance to see it, you're gonna see specific standards, at least three, that drive us in that direction. Uh, the second first principle, it has to do, data has to be accessible. It's gotta be understandable. Uh, right now, we've got structured data, we've got unstructured data. There are various states, and it kind of is where it is. Uh, but if we want to achieve uh, the outcomes, and that's ultimately our ability to properly leverage data, uh, we've got to fix the data problem. And the first part actually starts with the actual strategy. Uh, trusted, that's decision quality. Uh, we were having a discussion here about deepfake earlier. All right, uh, one, one of the big issues with that is it casts just enough doubt to cause you not to trust what you're looking at. In that particular case, it's the ability to manipulate uh, video. Uh, but think about the environment that we're in. Uh, think about the generational kind of changes, transformations, where there is a growing over, the, over, I'd say, the last five or six or seven years, distrust in what used to be norms, all right? So you combine that with uh, untrusted data, meaning I'm looking at it, but I'm not 100% sure that this is correct, uh, then now you're starting to impact operations. And, and so that's why uh, the trusted piece. And then it's got to be interoperable. Uh, I talked about where our data currently is. Uh, I'm not necessarily looking to move it, uh, but what we're trying to say is we're going to put standards in place. So some of it will end up in a cloud hosting environment. But I've talked to no expert yet that says that the future will not involve data centers. So there will be some of our data that will be, you know, reside uh, in data centers. But the question is, regardless of where it is, it's got to be interoperable. Uh, and then ultimately, it's got to be secure. 
Overnight, because I put out a data strategy, does that stop all of the disparate nature and isolated nature of things happening? All right. Among the hardest things we're going to do in the next 10 years is implementing the data strategy. It's going to require a culture change. It's going to require trust in places that uh, don't exist right now. I know that's the easy thing to roll out there. It's, oh, it's all about culture. And then th let the debate begin. But it's, it's there this time. So, so the approach we're taking is I can't go anywhere and have a conversation about data, uh, the data strategy, uh, cloud, without uh, Matt Easley and talking about his part. And so there's a Matt Easley piece with the AI task force. But if you go talk to the IPSA team, we took the data strategy and I said, I want the IPSA team to mark this up. Then we went to the Army Leader Dashboard team. I want the Army Leader Dashboard team uh, to mark this up. Uh, anybody here read the article written by two colonels, I think it is, called Data at the Speed of War? They wrote an article probably about four months ago uh, while they were over in Afghanistan. It was called Data at the Speed of War. We were looking to put the strategy in the hands of those guys. There has to be connective tissue between our plan in the data strategy and the actual standards, APIs, et cetera, that we're looking to implement uh, and the work that Matt Easley is doing. But the second piece of it is there are other live efforts that have been ongoing now in the Army for about 18 months that we have tried to take advantage of to give input uh, into the data strategy because they've done it. They literally have gone from this many authoritative data sources in some space down to this many. And G4, as an example, uh, our biggest data user out there is the law community, at least one of them. Uh, it's eye-watering how successful they've been uh, with divesting of non-authoritative data sources in, in their particular piece uh, of the missionary. So the speed, the race for talent, the acknowledgement of the capability intent of pure adversaries and overcoming the data problem. Uh, I believe that in the next 12 uh, to 18 months, uh, I think that those will be among uh, the greatest challenges. If I had to predict uh, that those will be among the greatest challenges uh, that we've got uh, facing us. And I'll stop and we'll open up for questions because I know there's probably questions in this. Hey, sir, Jared Serbu from Federal News Radio. I, I take your point about the data strategy is not going to get everybody into line overnight, but, but is, it, is it in effect acquisition guidance for future systems, or to some extent is it also going to require people to bolt on some of the standardization to systems that are out there? It, it, it is. Uh, so so uh, a big partner in this is uh, Paul Ostrowski and, and, and Dr. Jetty. So we've learned this lesson the hard way. And, uh, and I won't get into it because it's at a, at a different classification level, what happens when you bypass uh, data and you don't go back and, and sweep it up. What, what happens? There's some interesting things associated with that uh, that, that can be left behind. And so uh, there, there's, a, there's a look back uh, at, the, at the current, and it's going to require some resources to do that. But there's a stake in the ground that we're putting there that says, henceforth and forevermore, here is how we're going to do business. If, that, if that's helpful. So yes, absolutely, there has to be a look back because that's where a, a lot of our, uh, the, the critical, critical data elements that we have actually reside. Again, Lieutenant General Bruce Crawford, the Army's Chief Information Officer and G6, talking at an association of the U.S. Army Forum about the Army's new data strategy. He and I continued the conversation one-on-one -on -one a few minutes later. One thing I'm wondering is, is this going to be sort of tailored and broken down by functional area or data type, or is it, is it so, really? So, so good question. Uh, um, 
think about four missionaries. So the way the way it's broken down now, you, you've got a business missionary. Uh, you have, uh, and so our Office of Business Transformation, OBT, you know, generally oversees that. And you can imagine from your time with us uh, what, what's in the business missionary. Uh, you've got the enterprise missionary, and that's the one that I have uh, actual responsibility for. You have the warfighting missionary. Uh, that our G3, the Army, uh, has responsible for. And then you have the intelligence mission area. So think of the data strategy. If there were a pie divided into four pieces, if you carved out a piece in the middle uh, of that pie, um, what you then have is the data strategy. And think data standards that are going to make sure. Remember I talked about the six first principles? In order to get those fixed first principles, you're going to have to put standards in place. Uh, if you want visibility, here are standards that have to be put in place. If you want ultimately to be secure, here are some specific things you have to do. So the data strategy will be right in the middle of that, and that's going to be the forcing function uh, that says, listen, inside your mission area, you're going to have data governance. Inside, uh, let's say it was is the warfighting mission area or the enterprise uh, there's data governance inside there, but here are some minimum standards you must meet to make sure that your data is visible, that it's interoperable, you know, that it's usable, accessible, et cetera, et cetera. So one set of standards per mission area, no, or is no, it, or is it more granular than that? Common standards. Um, yeah. The, the yes, there are some things that are going to have to be common to all. There are some things that will be inside the missionary unique, but there are some standards that if I want data to be visible uh, from this mission area uh, to this mission area, then there are some things that are going to have to be common, that those missionaries actually have in common uh, so that information can be shared. You said, you know, some of the some of the functionals and system owners that you've been out to see over the past year or so have, have seen the goodness in here and standardizing on, on one authoritative data source. But are, are they standardizing in the same directions right now? Or is it six different owners standardizing on six different things? Well, well, so first of all, we, we have not published the data strategy yet. Uh, we're going to get, uh, you know, that that requires, uh, you know, at the highest levels of the Army approval. But we're headed. That's the direction we're headed. And we're, we're, we have we have done with our uh, authoring uh, of, of the data strategy. And so now it's about a conversation with senior leadership uh, who's behind the effort uh, about the outcomes and how we're going to measure ourselves, et, et, et cetera. And so if you go out to a post-camp station, and depending on who you talk to, if you're talking to senior levels, then they know it's in the data strategy because they've had an opportunity to chop on it. You go down to the end user, they're not yet there. It's no different than any corporation. Remember I, I talked about the triad associated with the overall data problem? I said it's the data strategy, uh, it's cloud, uh, and our plan for cloud, uh, getting to a cloud hosting environment, and then it's culture. You know, users are going to have to trust uh, that what they're looking at is, is essentially true. So you got that part of it. Uh, back to the you know trusted nature of the data. But they're also going to have to, I won't just say buy in, but take ownership of, of the plan. And you mentioned you don't particularly care where the data is stored. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out how literally to take that. No, because not, there's not a literal, but it's more, more figurative. And here's the example. First of all, the, the reason I made that comment is because there is no future state where there is no data center. Mm -hmm. So every, whether you're talking to, uh, you know, Netflix or Airbnb or all the big, you know, very large organizations uh, that are out there that have transitioned to a cloud hosting environment and a hybrid cloud hosting environment, none of them envision a world where there is no data center. 
and so that was a nod to the fact that, listen, the future state uh, will absolutely be fundamentally different than it is now in terms of the ratio of what's in the cloud uh, and what's actually in a data center. But I don't see a future where there is no data center because, uh, you know, even industry now actually has data centers. I mean, the most innovative of industry. Uh, this is not a defense of data centers. Centers is just kind of a, a statement of what's factual now and likely to be factual uh, in the future. So if you've got a state where, whether it's 90, 10% or 95, 5%, whatever it happens to be, that you have data sitting in a data center, then you've got to, the standards you put in place have to include those data centers. Otherwise, that's you, you, you'll have blind spots. So really, the, the only point you were trying to make, it sounds like, is that the data strategy is not telling you what your hosting environment is. No, it's just telling you that not. that hosting environment needs to be able to yeah, talk to me. Absolutely. The data strategy, this is not about trying to identify uh, and, and force people into this environment or that environment. The user experience and what they're looking into is outcomes, actually, norm normally, uh, is what drives that. Um, and, and what they're trying to actually do with their data. Uh, what we're saying with the data strategy is back to con this idea of there are standards that are common to all uh, that must be enforced, uh, which is fundamentally different than what, what's happened in the past. And so that's the purpose of the actual data strategy, at least one of the purposes, is to articulate uh, those particular standards that we're looking to enforce. And I guess another thing I wonder is how directive you're, you're going to end up being here. I mean, is it, is it essentially going to, is it going to be as unrestrictive as I just want you to have an API so people can so people can access your data, or is it going to be you need to be using a SQL database of this particular version or XML or whatever? All right. So so the the one thing we want to do is make sure, and I get get to answer in the crux of your question here is that um, we don't over. All right. Uh, uh, enforced to the point to where it uh, sub-optimizes the overall effort. And so that's why you hear me use the term common standards. There are things that are unique to a mission area that, that have to continue to happen. That's why it's a mission area. But um, we've identified the standards and we're going to have to be ruthless in enforcing the standards. But it's those common standards for the good of the Army and the good of the Joint Force that we're really going to go after in terms of uh, enforcing them. To that point, for at least the last three or four Army CIOs, your, your predecessors have been preaching the virtues of, of common standards, much like you are. Right. Has the Army not been ruthless enough up until this point? No, I, it's not a matter of the Army not being ruthless enough. I, I'll tell you one, one example is, uh, so the original data strategy from 2016, uh, written by uh, General Bob Farrell, um, was a very well-written document. If you went back and Googled it and pulled it out, it's a good document. Um, what we never did institutionally, and remember, it's not just the mill depths and services that are implementing data strategies. This is actually across the department. Sure. Um, we, we, we never went to took the next step to actually implement. So what does implementation look like? One, uh, implementation looks like telling the Army to do it. All right, and describing the outcomes that you're looking for, uh, articulating the metrics so that you can measure it over time, and resourcing it. Um, the, the thing that I don't know that we did as well as we could have was implementation. And so learning from that, 
the implementation plan is where we're focusing our attention now, not just on putting a strategy out, but now, if you remember General Fogarty mentioned the G3 of the Army, basically the, the director of operations. Our partner in this is the G3 of the Army because he's the guy who's going to tell the Army to actually implement the strategy. He's going to issue the order that says, here's our strategy, here's our standard, here are the outcomes, here are the timelines that we're looking for uh, for the early stages of this, uh, and then uh, here's the execute order that says go out and do this. Lieutenant General Bruce Crawford, the Army's Chief Information Officer, talking with me about the Army's new data strategy and the new standards it plans to use to enforce it. We'll talk more after a quick break. This is On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. As we continue our conversation with Lieutenant General Bruce Crawford, the Army's Chief Information Officer, he talked with me about a forthcoming update to the Army's data strategy. The new element is enforcement. The Army will also publish standards that it wants all of its system owners to adhere to. Before the break, Crawford told us the Army will push those marching orders out in the form of an execute order from the Army's Deputy Chief of Staff for Operations. So maybe that's one new thing. I mean, you've got you've got help from the G3 and from the chief, which maybe was not always as, as strong or at least as visible at that level before. But but it, it seems to me another new thing here is you've got a CDO below you now who's focusing yeah. on this stuff full time. And I wonder what yeah. what big a difference you expect that to make. I, I think it's a tremendous difference. I think uh, the thing. Uh, so, so there's a couple of things that make a difference. Uh, one is the the stand up of CDOs. Uh, and it's not just the Army, but I, I think you'll see a chief data officer in, in each one of the services. But the other idea, big idea that we have, and, and it's a little inside baseball for you, but we're having thoughts about um, if you remember the four missionaries that I talked about, what if for the sake of a good idea, each one of those missionaries actually had a deputy chief data officer? And their job is to advise the mission owner, the missionary owner. Uh, now it's not just a chief data officer that sits up at the Department of the Army level, but inside each one of those missionary owners, mission areas, there is a deputy chief data officer that works feeds directly to the CDO, but their job there is to direct face-to-face an advisement of the missionary owner. That's a different way of thinking about uh, the problem. Intriguing ideas. Yeah, yes, yes. Is this going to happen? I I would say uh, let's let's. uh, I don't want to get ahead of leadership uh, on making a final call, uh, but this is an idea just to give you some insight into our thinking. Real quick, just want to finish up on the joint piece of this because you you brought that up earlier. This is going to be an Army data strategy. How how informed is it by DoD CIO type guidance and extremely. Uh, extremely informed by not just DOD's insights, but OMB's uh, insights into where data, need, where we need to go uh, with, with our data strategy. Uh, listen, a, a big lesson learned, I mentioned the fact that um, we've been, uh, we're, we're in the midst, and you probably heard me say, of the largest, most comprehensive review and assessment of our networks in the last 30 years. A a big uh, takeaway for us in understanding, and this is not a new lesson, but it's it's, uh, given where we're going with multi-domain and all-domain operations, that we cannot afford to do things in isolation. 
And so this is not, this is the Army's data strategy, but there's connective tissue to the Department of Defense and guidance from uh, higher on uh, their thoughts and data strategy. Just, you know, there, there are joint benefits to, you know, at the DOD level, if everybody's on the same sheet of music, but just from a selfish army perspective, what does it do for you if you have a common set of standards that are interoperable with all your joint partners? So I, when I talked about the characteristics of uh, the network in an era of great power competition, the very first thing I talked about is speed. All right. Uh, enabling the warfighter or the user to orient, decide and act faster uh, than peer adversaries. Uh, think about uh, an environment where data is structured, uh, where we've identified authoritative data sources, so you're gonna get the accuracy uh, that you're looking for, where Steve Fogarty has the data feeding into some type in an automated fashion. It's been structured, it's been aggregated, and it's feeding into some type of big data platform. Uh, now you remove the human from the loop of all the manual tasks associated with, hey, look, Mr. Serbu uh, doesn't normally do this at 2 o'clock in the morning. That's an anomaly. Uh, and it's a data feed. It's not a person manually watching X, Y, or Z. Think of the power of that. The speed of decision making, but our ability to act faster than peer adversaries goes up exponentially uh, when we start to capture uh, all things that have to do with the data problem. Uh, the other piece is security, um, is uh, our ability to protect our data uh, is uh, goes up exponentially uh, when it has been put into more of a structured environment. And we have the ability to see ourselves uh, at Echelon, where our, data, where our data is and what the state of it is. Just think about the power of that. So your question about what do we get out of it, um, uh, we get uh, increased uh, ability uh, to compete uh, and win. Uh, when we go after this particular problem. And uh, while we've been sitting here just doing this interview, think about the amount of data that, that's been generated that we're going to need to be able to see and be able to access. Last quick one, because I know you got to go. I, I know this is not strictly about cloud or not cloud, but but getting to the cloud is certainly a, a broader objective. So, so does having a data strategy and enforcing it in place like this one how much of an enabling function is that to eventually getting a lot of these systems to the cloud? It, it is critical uh, to not just moving to the cloud, but doing it smartly. Uh, being able to identify which data should move. You heard the question that I got in the room there reference uh, the relationship to artificial in, in intelligence. Um, the last thing that I need to do is aggregate and structure data uh, and then Brigadier General Matt Easley, the lead for the AI task force, can't use it. And so what the data strategy is going to allow us to do is, is kind of thin the herd, so to speak, when it comes to which data uh, and why, and divest of legacy uh, applications, or at least make conscious and informed decisions about what the priorities uh, ought to be. Lieutenant General Bruce Crawford, he is the Army's Chief Information Officer and G6. He talked with me on the sidelines of an Association of the U.S. Army Conference on Cyber at AUSA headquarters in Arlington, Virginia. A short break here, and when we come back, we'll dig into what all the services might do to rethink the ways in which they get their reserve forces ready for future military operations. Telework might take the place of drill weekends, at least in some cases. More on that next on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is On DOD. I'm Jared Serby.
Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, this is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. The Defense Department and Congress are showing some signs that they may be ready to rethink the way Guard and Reserve Forces are structured. Responding to a congressional directive, DOD recently asked the RAND Corporation to take a fresh look at how the military might overhaul its approach to reserve duty. It's partly a recognition that the reserves need to change if they're going to attract people with critical skills like medical professionals and cyber experts. That RAND report is now out, and as the authors note, the basic one weekend a month, two weeks a year drill schedule hasn't really changed since midway through the 20th century. Federal News Network's Scott Massione talked with the lead authors of the new report, Manpower Alternatives to Enhance Total Force Capabilities. Molly Dunnigan and Steve Dalzell are both senior political scientists at RAND. So this was a study that was sponsored by the Office of the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Reserve Integration. Um, And they tasked us with answering the question of which alternative employment models might the Department of Defense potentially draw from to employ labor pools that are currently underutilized in the reserve components. And so, yes, I mean, essentially this was an exploratory study that aimed to look outside the box to get around potential uh, manpower issues that the reserve component faces across a variety of issues. We looked primarily at two dimensions of constraint on manpower for the RCs, the reserve components, um, location constraints and scheduling constraints. And the intent of the study and, and the way that we laid it out in the report was to come up with a variety of potential alternative workforce constructs that we sort of see as potential pilot programs. Um, In this way, you know, they are very exploratory. They are sort of um, just getting the idea out there. And any of these that the Department of Defense would potentially be interested in adopting, they would certainly need to experiment with, dig deeper into, and research further and examine the implications of them further. And how much are the reserve components hurting for people at this point? I mean, are they in dire straits when they're trying to find people in general, or is this in certain profession areas? It all it varies from year to year, obviously, which components, both active and reserve, have trouble uh, meeting their mission for recruiting. And within that, there are always certain skills that are most challenging for a particular component or a particular service to meet. Um, many of those are the obvious ones that are reflecting challenges in, in civil society as well of, you know, we can't get enough computer programmers or things like that. That carries over into the military if they're trying to find people that can do STEM fields and things like that. And some are more reflecting the particular physical needs required to do high-end combat skills and things like that, fighter pilots or um, ground combat forces and things like that, that they don't draw from the civilian world for. So um, I I think that you you really dug into some interesting manpower issues. And I think it seems like there's a lot of things also that the military is not taking advantage of that are uh, available or that make things a lot easier for them within the, the private sector. Like private sector gives people an opportunity to telework and DOD doesn't seem to be taking advantage of that opportunity. So I, I guess I would like you just to kind of maybe go over a few of the, the interesting points that you made um, or interesting solutions that DOD might be able to explore to help retain and recruit these 
soldiers and Marines and airmen and, and everyone else? So, so one of the ones that, that um, I found interesting in discussing this was one that we called seasoned, seasonal worker and seasonal reserve. Um, and that partly reflects things that we've heard about the civilian economy where there are the sort of surge economies that seem to be coming being more prevalent now than in the past. Um, you know, we've heard about the groups that uh, coalesce to do fulfillment centers around the holidays for online marketers and things like that. Um, and likewise, there are reserve skills that are hard to train on a traditional one weekend a month kind of schedule. Any very complex collective activity, um, that's not a lot of time to get your team together and actually do a training activity. And so the idea is, are these complementary opportunities where there are parts of the population that are available for larger stretches of time when they're not doing a particular kind of uh, seasonal work? Um, and could they be formed into groups that gather for longer periods of training in order to complete a task? Um, something in transportation or engineer fields, for example, that involve a lot of heavy equipment getting into one place so that they can conduct a meaningful training event. And so giving more flexibility for that kind of scheduling in, in the training might both take advantage of um, the changes in the civilian economy, but also allow for more effective training for the reserve unit. Great. And Molly, do you have and one you'd like to And I think the workforce... Co- Sure, yeah. I was just going to say the workforce construct that I find most interesting personally is the telereserves construct. Um, This is basically the idea that um, you would expand existing telework arrangements to allow more reserve component members to take advantage of ongoing advances in technology, and they would therefore be able to perform a broader variety of tasks remotely um, from any location, from their homes, from a location closer to home than where they would typically have to train or be on duty um, or a remote location away from their home and duty station, but where their civilian job might require them to be. Um, And ultimately, this is designed to break down the location barriers. As I just mentioned, you know, we focused on both location and scheduling constraints. And so Steve just talked about um, seasonal work or seasonal reserve, which is designed to get around scheduling constraints. But this is really designed to get around location barriers. Um, somebody who can't, for some reason, get to training locations um, or to their reserve component duty location due to personal responsibilities or personal characteristics or their civilian job. Um, And so the idea is just that it would facilitate a greater number of folks being able to participate in the reserve components. Um, The other thing I will say that's relevant to this issue of, you know, picking a favorite workforce construct out of the list we developed is that a lot of these are not mutually exclusive, and you could think about combining some of them. So, for instance, telereserves could be combined with the part-time plus construct, which is essentially um, the idea that you would allow somebody to participate on a part-time basis, but slightly more than um, might be uh, the minimum requirement for the reserve components right now. Um, 
So some of these could just be combined in certain ways to facilitate an even greater uh, proportion of the population participating in the reserve component and also to just make it a more attractive option to folks to participate in the reserve component. And, and there was one other one that I think I wanted to just kind of put out there, which was the, I guess you'd call it the no passport uh, rule. And would you mind kind of talking about that one too? So, so part of what we are trying to recognize is that although the, the current OSD policy emphasizes having all individuals deployable, that in practice there are large numbers of positions that even in wartime are based within the continental United States and are not requiring deployment. And so we wanted to put on the table the the concept that in cases where you've got a critical shortage of a skill that includes a number of positions that are exercising their responsibilities without deploying, that there might be reasons and justification where they might want to fine-tune the policy to ensure that those people can continue contributing from their location, even if at a point in time they can't physically deploy uh, to be part of the force. Again, it's probably a, a small subset of uh, of those possible positions, but we thought that needed to be put on the table as one of the policy choices available to OSD uh, to meet particular shortfalls. That's Steve Dalzell from the RAND Corporation, along with Molly Dunnigan. They are both senior political scientists at RAND. More of their conversation with Scott Massioni about restructuring guard and reserve commitments after one more break. This is on DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbin. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. And getting back to our conversation on rethinking how Guard and Reserve members meet their military commitments, Federal News Network's Scott Massioni talked with the lead authors of a new RAND Corporation report, Manpower Alternatives to Enhance Total Force Capabilities. Molly Dunnigan and Steve Dalzell are both senior political scientists at RAND. Getting a little more meta about this, could you, you talk a little bit about how and why the reserve component needs a change in uh, the way that it, it, it looks at personnel. Uh, you know, I think there was, in the industrial age, in the 20th century, people had different expectations for work, and it seems like that is changing. You know, what is causing this need for DOD to really kind of look at its own um, personnel practices? The current National Guard and Reserve training model and construct was developed early in the Cold War. Um, This is when people really had specific expectations about work days, family structure, and so on, and and those expectations have changed a lot as um, U.S. society and global society has evolved. Um, So this, again, was a very big big picture, think-outside-the-box, exploratory study just trying to examine where um, you could imagine there would be distinctions in new alternative employment models like those that you see in the civilian sphere that could help to modernize the system and bring in people who you don't normally see um, being able to participate in the system. Um, To be a little bit more specific about that and to drill down at a more micro level, the current system still starts with an assumption that members of the Guard and Reserve are generally going to perform monthly training with their unit somewhere near where they live. 
but numerous occupations, for instance, restaurant workers, might be excluded from reserve participation if the requirement is to have off one weekend a month. Um, and so, you know, we thought about bringing in these other populations that are typically excluded for these um, scheduling or geographic location constraint requirements. Um, and then we were also trying to think about it from the demand side as well. You, you know, you sort of asked, why do we have this problem with manpower shortages and, and who are the um, individuals impacted by that? We tried to look at which um, specialties in the reserve component, which occupational specialties are in highest demand but lowest density in the reserve component. So, for instance, some that we came up with were pilots, um, healthcare professionals, both doctors and nurses, um, cyber professionals, people with cyber-related skill sets. And so thinking through, you know, how can we meet that demand with this potential supply that's out there but is constrained from participating in the reserve component either because of scheduling constraints or location constraints combined potentially with the fact that they have very attractive civilian occupational options and how can the reserve component become more attractive to be able to compete with those um, civilian occupational opportunities. So you've talked about how this is a very big picture uh, report. What is the feasibility of some of these actually becoming you know, law or becoming part of, of policy within the Defense Department? So I'd say one of the things that we tried to do in the report was to identify the differences between these different options uh, based on that very question. And so it, it's a spectrum. There are, are areas where we said it, it doesn't require any change in policy or law. It might only require uh, what we call force structure kind of changes that, for example, um, in the area of chaplains, in the Canadian military, they've created a new category where they then outside of the, the normal clergy people, they have deacons, which is a uh, a different category of religious service um, who can take the burden off of chaplains when you've got a shortage of of chaplains in the, in the field. Um, and any one of the services could do a similar thing with their force structure and create a new specialty within their existing organization and have very little outside requirement for legal change or regulatory change. Um, some of the other ones do require systematic change, like the, um, the example I used before of the seasonal um, reservist and seasonal worker, uh, there are things in sort of the timekeeping and administrative um, processes in the military that make it hard to have someone only come on to do uh, inactive duty training every 90 days, right? That there are certain things that you have to touch every so often to stay in the as an active person in the system. And uh, they'd have to work around those kind of administrative changes. And some of them do require larger, you know, policy decisions or things like that uh, to, to fully implement. I think the, the, the biggest point to sort of go back to what Molly was saying earlier is that um, it's a competitive workplace out there. And if you think of reserve service as a, a competing form of employment, that if you're trying to get the best and most qualified people to to join your enterprise, um, you have to make it attractive for them. You have to always be thinking, can you do something to make 
sure that the best and most qualified people, the ones you're trying to recruit in, uh, it's a competitive environment out there. And whether you're a private company or that you're the, a military organization, you want to make sure that you don't have any unnecessary obstacles to recruiting the best and the brightest people to, to come join you. And especially in the 21st century when we know that large parts of the American population don't have personal contact with the military or family experience of military service, the military can't afford to write them off. And I think a lot of these proposals are the kind of things that would help the military reach out into other parts of the population that not only aren't individually likely to to join the military, but maybe in their broader family experience may not have had people join the military. And by giving options like this, it might help broaden that pool and make sure that they are getting the the, the best people to fill their positions and to meet their requirements. That's Steve Dalzell, along with Molly Dunnigan, both senior political scientists at the Rand Corporation. They talked with Federal News Network's Scott Bassioni about the new report, Manpower Alternatives to Enhance Total Force Capabilities. We'll post a link to the report at federalnewsnetwork.com. Earlier in the program, we heard from Lieutenant General Bruce Crawford, the Army's chief information officer, about the Army's new data strategy. If you missed that conversation, we'll post this week's full program at federalnewsnetwork.com and in our podcast feed. You can subscribe to On DoD on Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. That's it for this week's edition of On DoD. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbio. So long. You've been listening to On DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.